So this evening, I want to talk in a little more detail on samadhi practice, on concentration practice, its nature, why it's important, some of the challenges of samadhi practice, and some of the ways that it's connected with the other main emphases of our retreat, the emphasis on insight practice and what we're speaking of as opening to radiant mind. And I'll invite you, even as you're listening, to see if you can actually stay with your breath and continue samadhi practice as you hear a talk on samadhi practice. And I I can remember being at um, actually longer retreats focused just on samadhi and practicing in that way. And it can uh, really help with that following of what Susie was calling the secret teaching, which is that of continuity. And there's something very beautiful and simple about samadhi practice, which is that we really follow the same instructions over and over again. There's not too much reason for figuring things out very much. We just really stay with it over and over again. And so there can be a kind of simplicity and relief on the one side. And I, I think a lot of, there's a beautiful line from the philosopher Kierkegaard where he says, purity of heart is to will one thing. And samadhi practice is like that. There's a kind of a willing of one thing over and over again. So that's the one side. And when it's challenging, that simplicity turns into what? Boredom, aversion, reflection about whether we chose the right retreat, and so forth. So Susie gave a very nice framing of the relation of samadhi practice to some of the other main practices that we have worked with in our, and that are the sort of the mainstays generally of our practice, mindfulness particularly. And I wanted to say a little bit more just about some of the terms that we're using and will use um, in the retreat for the sake of clarity, um, that we will sometimes be talking about consciousness and in both the Buddhist tradition and in a lot of Western psychological traditions and philosophical traditions, there's a sense of consciousness as involving a knower and a known that it has a a structure of 
we might say, subject and object. <clears throat> and that's, that's how it's understood generally in Buddhist tradition. Again, as in, as in many Western traditions. <clears throat> we'll also be using mindfulness at times. And mindfulness is different than consciousness. Mindfulness is really the knowing of an object and the knowing that we are, are knowing. It's a knowing that we are aware of the body, the breath, and so forth. <clears throat> they both have a structure of knower and known of subject and object. <clears throat> you know, in, in some contexts we would say they are dualistic and that's quite useful, quite useful in many ways. We also use the word attention at times and by attention we're particularly pointing to something like the spotlight that we focus on a particular object. <clears throat> by object I'm meaning not so much a thing out in the world but anything that we focus on, anything that we know. So we talk, talk about the breath as an object of attention or an object of samadhi practice. <clears throat> And then samadhi practice also, certainly in its um, starting point, similarly has a structure of knower and known. We have the awareness, or I should say we have the consciousness of the breath or of some other primary object. <clears throat> and <clears throat> the difference between samadhi practice and mindfulness is that the samadhi practice is always with the same object, or at least that's the, that's the aim, that's the intention. <clears throat> now through our, as our mindfulness practice develops in the second phase of the retreat, we'll be working with um, what, we, what we're calling three areas or three ways of uh, insight that free us or that liberate us, three ways of seeing that free into, we'll be working with uh, looking into impermanence, looking into the nature of dukkha or reactivity, often translated as suffering, and the nature of um, the self, particularly focused on the teaching of not-self. <clears throat> and these are actually the, really the uh, main goals of insight practice or to focus in that way. Many of us have been doing insight practice for many years, right? And you, you may have been wondering either where are the insights or what are the insights, right? And these are them, to use English that makes my high school English teacher appear over my right shoulder. So, um, <clears throat> Yeah, so the, we were actually going to the core insights and focusing on them in ways that, again, you'll hear, hear them talked about, but not always focused on in the same way or in an in a, in a, uh, extended way. <clears throat> the insight practice still works within the structure of subject and object, of knower and known. Even though as samadhi deepens and as insight deepens, 
there are ways in which that subject-object structure starts to break down. Sometimes in samadhi practice, as we're really with the object, it starts to be less solid. Sometimes it starts to um, shimmer or shine or we notice the its, own, its impermanence, the way it's not just one object but something is moving. And um, similarly, as we practice with insight, sometimes that subject-object structure starts to break down and we'll see that as we work with the insight section in, in a few days. The last area of practice we're using the term awareness for and distinguishing it in that way somewhat technically from consciousness. And we're pointing to awareness of a kind that doesn't have a subject-object structure. We use different terms for it, radiant mind or awakened awareness. And it's really a development of our ordinary awareness, which psychologists tell us is, is more like a field. It's more receptive. We're not always focusing on it, but it's there, you know, the way we have peripheral vision. And there's awareness there, but we're not focused on something. And the radiant mind or the awakened awareness is a, is a, a kind of... Um, development of that. And we'll be pointing to that in the last part of the retreat as a way of knowing, we might say, that uh, doesn't have that same subject-object structure. We sometimes talk about it as subjectless, objectless knowing. So there's some knowing, but it's of a different nature. And it's also related to non-reactivity, to a certain uh, radiance in the mind. Sounds good? Okay. Those were the coming attractions before the talk on samadhi. So, so you can see how uh, samadhi fits in that, in that structure of these three main forms. And samadhi is particularly important. I'll say more about this later. But samadhi is particularly important because it helps us to cut through the very habitual conceptualization and thinking that is widespread in our culture, in Western culture, and maybe even more so with all the electronic media. And the samadhi practice, I think, gives us in the long run the potential to use those media skillfully without being quite so hooked all the time. That gives us the ability to, in retreat or in daily life, to be able to cut through habitual thinking. And that cutting through of habitual thinking is required for the deeper insight we can't really have that deeper insight if we're just simply distracted a lot of the time. <clears throat> and that the samadhi also 
makes it possible for us to not just have glimpses of this awakened awareness, which is not so difficult. It's not, and, you know, I think you'll see, it's not so difficult to glimpse this awakened awareness, but it's rather difficult to uh, stabilize it and have it last, not to mention have it be there in daily life. <laughs> and the samadhi can play a very significant role in that. In through the training, bringing us to be able to not be so ruled by the conceptual mind, but rather to be able to use it more as a tool rather than be, as it were, its tool. So as Susie um, laid out this morning, we are tending to use the word samadhi a little bit more than the word concentration, which is the usual translation of samadhi, you know, for the reasons that that Susie gave, that often concentration has connotations of effort, tightness, straining, over-efforting, and so forth. Whereas the essence of samadhi is this somewhat paradoxical combination of ease and relaxation, and as Susie said, and discipline. Or we could say it's a combination of relaxation and persistence. (laughs) And it doesn't, it kind of, a lot of us are programmed to have one or the other. I think we've noticed that, right? During, During the practice, it's hard to have both discipline and relax. You know, it's, and a lot of our teaching hints have been pointing towards that, but it can take time because our habits of effort are long-standing. They've been around for a while. You know, I know this from my own experience. It has taken a lot of time to come to more ease with samadhi practice. And maybe I'll tell some more stories of challenges along the way. So mostly just to say, uh, be patient, stay with it. You stay with it, have good instructions, things develop quite well. And there are beautiful ways in which the Mahdi practice, again, as I was saying, when it gets very developed, actually can move into, very naturally, into the insight practice and into the awakened awareness. Very naturally through its own uh, rhythm. <clears throat> the roots of the word are two. There's S-A-M, which generally has to do with together, means together, something like together. And it's actually somewhat related to words like summary. You know, Pali and Sanskrit are, are Indo-European languages, so there's some common roots that we have with um, Western languages. <clears throat> so the first part means something like together, and the adi part of samadhi means to place, or to direct, or to put somewhere. So we could say that um, <clears throat> samadhi means to place together. And 
people have been trying to find other mm, translations other than concentration. And some of the ones that people come up with are like gathering or composure or unification of the mind and heart and body. One-pointedness is sometimes used. Uh, Richard Shankman, who wrote a very nice book on samadhi practice called Samadhi. (laughs) And and by the way, we're going to be uh, giving you on the, I think around the last day of the retreat, a uh, a 12-page packet which has uh, a combination of quotations and a reading list and the, uh, the Qigong workout. So, further coming attractions. <laughs> so, um, but so he, he speaks of samadhi as unifying the mind in steady, undistracted awareness. And it's a natural quality. All of the, all the qualities that we develop in meditation are actually natural qualities that are brought into a kind of um, focused practice. You know, mindfulness, we're often aware that we're noticing something, but mindfulness becomes a systematic practice. Similarly, we're often very focused, you know, and even all sorts of other uh, beings have deep samadhi, you know. Watch a cat with a, looking at a squirrel, deep samadhi, <laughs> right? Or, you know, I know I was, a little while ago, I was watching a heron in the field here, just really, really deep in focused attention. <clears throat> this, is, this is samadhi, and, and it's something that we all have. You know, it's a very natural quality. And we're, you know, a lot of what meditative traditions do is they take these natural qualities and turn it into practices which develop the quality to a higher degree. That's really, really what we're doing. And so it's, there's something very commonsensical about a lot of the meditative traditions. <clears throat> this is from the Buddha. There comes a time when the mind becomes inwardly steadied composed, unified, and concentrated. That samadhi, I'll I'll use samadhi rather than concentration, that samadhi is then calm and refined. It has attained to full tranquility and achieved mental and emotional unification. It is not maintained anymore by strenuous suppression of the defilements or of what gets in the way of samadhi. So at a certain point, the samadhi doesn't require so much effort. We're on the first day where there's a lot of effort. You know, we, we sometimes use the metaphor of those, you know, old cars from the 1920s or 10s or something where they, you know, you see in the silent films where they got out in front and cranked them up, cranked them up, cranked them up, cranked them up, then the engine gets going and they jump in and scoot away. Samadhi, very similar. <laughs> so that we're, but we're in the crank up phase, right? And it's harder. It's admittedly harder. So just to know that it, it works something like that. At a, certain t- at a certain point, it becomes more automatic and uh, non-effortful. It's really like 
like most of what we do, most of, so much of what we learn, there is a learning process, which is difficult. Think of learning to ride a bike. And then at a certain point, it becomes easy and natural. Or I think, you know, think of anything like being a musician or being an athlete, you know. Um, I was a competitive swimmer for, for 10 years. And, you know, any of you who have been athletes, or I think it's, again, very similar with something like music, you, you do a lot of practice and you get to a point where a high level of effort is automatic and feels effortless. It's a very natural way that developing a capacity uh, looks when it's well developed. And samadhi is no different. But again, we're in the learning, we're in the playing the scales phase for many of us. So we have to be patient. So there are a lot of different forms of samadhi practice. It really is about focusing on one so-called meditation object and staying with it. You know, we are recommending the breath in one of the core texts in the um, lineages that Spirit Rock represents. There's a text called the Vasudhi Maga, and there are 40 different objects that are possible for concentration of which the breath is one. And we could focus on, we could do the heart practices like metta or compassion. Those are um, capable of being worked with as, as samadhi practices. Some of you know that there are sometimes, sometimes you keep your eyes open and you look at something external and that there are forms of concentration or samadhi practice in that way. Traditionally, there were colored discs, you know, little colored discs that you just look at and you focus on. I've done practices in the Tibetan tradition where I just look at um, the Tibetan letter uh, A or A and just with eyes open. And that's a form of concentration practice which goes exactly in the same direction as with the breath. You know, someone could do visualization, someone could uh, chant. I have a friend whose practice is chanting most of the time. That's a kind of samadhi practice. So there are a lot of different forms. People can look at a flame, right? And we're using one form, the breath, and any of the forms can take us uh, to a high development of samadhi. As we develop in samadhi, we move in, in certain directions, and we develop increasingly towards that samadhi being more automatic. In, in our lineage, we call that automatic quality of samadhi access concentration, where it's very steady with the object. And that can happen for moments or for sustained periods as we practice more. And there can be an effortless quality and one's with the object and the level of conceptualization can be quite, quite low. And further, there are uh, deeper states called jhanas, which we're not emphasizing in this retreat, which, which go further with different levels of absorption. <clears throat> in some other Buddhist traditions, those are de-emphasized and the emphasis is just to come to a place that's more like access concentration where one's mind is 
rather still, and then you can direct the attention towards everyday phenomena and see more clearly. And so samadhi practice is really crucial, I think, in ways that, that you can understand for our general practice, for making possible a depth of seeing that leads to freeing insight. The aim of the samadhi practice is always beyond itself. It's always towards insight and greater freedom. That's important, you know. When we, when we do a lot of samadhi practice and in, in, in teaching these kinds of retreats over the last years, uh, I've noticed that, you know, that, that quite a few people haven't given so much attention to samadhi practice. They get very inspired and they do it for the next six months after the retreat, right? People can get very interested. Maybe I um, remember that tomorrow. Today, <laughs> today is maybe feel like a long day. I don't know, but it's uh, but it, it can be very inspiring. Again, where it's sometimes for many of us, it's a missing piece in our practice. We haven't necessarily given the attention to samadhi practice. It was very instrumental, certainly in the teachings of the Buddha. Very, 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 very central. <clears throat> just to be able to, to see through our ordinary minds, to have the possibility of there being greater, greater stillness, greater seeing, less being caught in that kind of automatic conceptual mind. <clears throat> as, we, as we deepen in samadhi practice, we also can have a sense, because as the samadhi practice deepens, there can open up a quality of calm and of peace and even of bliss that gives us a sense of a a very beautiful and profound inwardness that is uh, in which we have um, an amazing level of feeling everything is okay. (laughs) Or that sense of... uh, Uh, having the grounds in our own being of peace and calm and clarity and being less knocked around by external conditions and circumstances. It's a very powerful aspect of practice. Samadhi can help us with that so that we are less driven by reactivity and by repetitive thoughts. So we practice, we practice samadhi by being with one object, with one focus, the breath, or for some of us, it could be body sensations or, or possibly something else. <clears throat> and we keep coming back. The essence of the practice is to keep coming back. We really need just a few qualities to do, or capacities to do samadhi practice. We need to be, maybe have an understanding of what we're doing. We need to 
be able to connect at least initially with the breath or whatever else the object is. And we need to be able to track when we're off the breath. We need that, we need that capacity. We need to be able to really have a sense of what's occurring. And there's been some very interesting research done on samadhi practice. One of the interesting things is that samadhi actually can be learned. It's a learned capacity, which means that you don't ha- we don't have to go back to square one every time. Isn't that interesting? I just learned this in the last year. You know, it was really to learn a little bit more about some of the um, <clears throat> neuroscience of samadhi. There have been some studies. And it's learned so that over time, the level of samadhi can deepen right when we sit down to start to meditate. Again, we don't start at square one, but the capacity can be developed. And there's also a very interesting um, study that shows that um, the tracking of when we're off the breath is actually a crucial capacity for deepening in samadhi. That is not just the ability to focus, but it's that ability to, uh, to track. This is you know, very much related to what Erin was talking about in terms of investigations. Why I appreciated when she was asking us at the end of the uh, 2.30 sitting, what did you learn? See what you learned. That's related to this capacity to track, to know what's going on. You know, related to the quality of inquiry or investigation. So let me, let me read a little bit about this research. <clears throat> there is a part of the brain called the anterior cingulate cortex. And that is the part of the brain which supports samadhi. There's also another part of the brain called the right dorsal prefrontal cortex. And that's, the, that's where we have the capacity for tracking when we're off, for knowing what's happening, you know, for being able to know what's going on in our consciousness related to mindfulness, inquiry, investigation. And here's, here's, the, here's the summary of some study. One study showed a difference between beginning and advanced uh, concentrate uh, samadhi practitioners, only the advanced practitioners really activated the right dorsal prefrontal cortex, whereas everyone activated the, uh, what's called the ACC. <clears throat> and in other words, those who really deepen in samadhi are those who can really know what's going on track what's going on, also be able to notice, am I caught in this habit? Is this happening? This is really an aspect of mindfulness or inquiry. So really, we want to emphasize that. Really notice, notice what's going on, notice one's habits. <clears throat> notice your habits. And so we, we emphasize again this paradoxical combination of staying with it, being persistent, 
keeping on returning with relaxation and ease. You know, and we, we can track. One of the things that we can track for with our, um, that dimension of inquiry, or you can call it mindfulness, is to track which of these needs more attention. Am I a little bit more on the persistence and effort side or a little bit more on the relaxation and ease side? And we can keep asking that and you know, set an intention at the beginning of a sitting. You know, one of the, I think, um, strengths, or what maybe I should say one of the great supports for our practice is to, and it's related to what I've been talking about in terms of this uh, capacity to track, is to set an intention at the beginning of a session. And I'll, tomorrow morning, I'll guide us some in that. Just set a very brief intention, can take a minute. But again, it's kind of like checking in, okay, what's happening? What's a wise intention right now? It might, and the response might be, I've been a little bit tight, let me really focus on ease. Or it could be the opposite. I've been really focusing on ease, I'm a little sleepy, I think persistence could be skillful, <laughs> something like that, right? And so um, working with intention that way can be very, very helpful. <clears throat> but we want to also keep it fresh somehow. How do we keep it fresh? We want to just have it fresh with ease and persistence. So um, sometimes if we're feeling, I think, really tight, it can be valuable to take a little bit of a break or maybe, maybe with uh, the walking meditation, do a little bit more of the walking. The freshness is really important if we're feeling really, really stuck. If we're, and we have to be able to distinguish feeling really, really stuck from wanting a break because we're wanting a break. <laughs> okay? <clears throat> One piece of guidance on the practice that, I, that is helpful is that when we are just staying with the breath and something else comes up, there is a distinction that's important for samadhi practice, and that's between when what is coming up is something like a moderate level of strength or less, then we let it stay in the background. And if something comes up that's quite strong and has duration, an example might be that uh, maybe three months ago I had a significant loss. Maybe someone died in my extended family. And this is the first retreat I've done. And there's, there's some grieving still to happen. And maybe the grief comes up here in the middle of the samadhi section. And it's strong and it lasts for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. In that case, we would actually not try to suppress it. We would judge that's of a strong nature as opposed to moderate or less. And we would actually stay with it with mindfulness, maybe bring in some of the heart practices like compassion. And that's an important distinction because the samadhi practice isn't about suppressing something quite strong that wants to come through. That being said, it's important to really be clear about that level of strength. Having an unresolved issue in one's life, does anyone have one of those? About... About 5%. Okay. Very good. This is an advanced retreat, isn't it? <laughs> okay. Um, we may have unresolved issues in our life, and 
in retreats, there's not that much to do. And guess who comes knocking, right? The unresolved issue. Hey, it's a really good time to think this one out. Right? And it comes over and over again. And, and there's a temptation to say, this is a really great time to think that issue out. You know, should I take that job or not? You know, and so forth, or whatever it is. And in this context, I think it's quite important. This is where I would say uh, that's probably not at the level of strong. It's at the level of repetitive <laughs> and moderate or, or less. But here's, here's the recommendation. <clears throat> I think it can be important to acknowledge that it's import- this is an important issue, let's say, and that it's important to work with it. But one can tell oneself something like this. this I, do, I do this practice. On the last morning of the retreat, after breakfast, I will devote 20 or 30 minutes to looking at this issue with a really clear mind. Whether through journaling or reflecting. And so when that thought comes up, that unresolved issue comes up, we're saying, later. But we're going to deal with it. You know? So I think that can, as it were, meet the need for some resolution coming from a point of clarity while protecting the retreat. So that's an important distinction. So does that make some sense? The, these are some of the skills that we develop in, in samadhi practice. <clears throat> My mother really loves samadhi practice. We would often meditate together. And when we would meditate, I would ask, what kind of practice do you want to do? And she lived nearby and she, used, she would come to talks at Spirit Rock, and some of, quite a few of you uh, have met her. <clears throat> and she would always say, I didn't teach her the word samadhi, but she would always say, just concentration practice. <laughs> that's, we, that's all we would do. <clears throat> just concentration practice. And, and she said she was a, a musician, you know, and she, she performed at times, uh, particularly when she was younger, and she would say, music is my concentration practice. And um, I did a little poem based on conversation that, that goes like this. My mother Bernice says that music is her concentration practice. In giving a concert, she says, if there's a sense of self or of how one's doing, it's not good, she says. <laughs> you have to let yourself be taken over by the music. And that's the recommendation here. Let yourself be taken over by the breath, by what we're looking at, so that you're just with that. And in a way, a lot of the uh, guidance is to um, keep coming back, notice when the mind <coughs> complains or judges how one's doing, and just keep coming back. <coughs> So that really is already beginning to talk about some of the challenges of samadhi practice. You know, I think that we've seen. And I've, you know, in a way I've already started to cover some of them. But I wanted to mention a little more um, directly several types of, several types of challenge to 
to samadhi practice, and they'll be pretty clear. One of them is having an overactive mind, being distracted. I won't ask for hands, but I think it's kind of, isn't it a kind of a cultural condition? I think, I think so. Another one is uh, sleepiness or drowsiness and low energy. Again, sometimes they're on the first day. A third challenge in samadhi practice is that we may have uh, dimensions that we sometimes call purification, which could be like that grief arising. And that uh, things come up, partly in retreats in general and partly specifically in samadhi practice. And it's helpful to know how to work with challenging states which come up or could be self-judgment or reactivity or something like that. There's a way in which as we practice, there's a kind of, um, again, call it purification. That's a term that's been used in the tradition, sort of working through the, um, that which makes it hard to have samadhi, that which makes it hard to stay with the practice. Mm-hmm. A fourth challenge is getting attached to states of samadhi. I, I wish that everyone works with that issue soon. I don't know if you got that was a joke. <laughs> that was, was maybe, you know. I think, didn't the Buddha have a, one of his texts was called, one of his uh, discourses was called One Fortunate Attachment. I don't think it was related to samadhi, but okay. may, I have, may I have this great challenge of working with attachment to deep states of samadhi? I will be able to work with that. It's okay. And then the last one, which I'll probably spend the most time on, is uh, questions of striving or what we might call over-efforting in samadhi practice. And that's that's a one which I certainly um, have seen in my own practice and worked with a lot. And I think it's there for for many of us. So let me go through these, and this will probably be the the bulk of the rest of the talk. So we, we, we have a number of ways that we can work with the overactive mind, the, the thinking process. A lot of it is just continually noticing, noticing it and coming back. We can use other tools or aspects of technique. Susie mentioned that... Um, way of being with the pause, which for most people is greater between the out-breath and the in-breath. And it's in that pause that a lot of the mind uh, distraction occurs. And so having a place you go during the pause can really make a significant difference in your samadhi practice. And it, it, it also actually helps some with over-efforting because you just go, we just go to a place where we rest for a while. So it could be where, you know, the in-breath, the out-breath, and then we rest with, you know, I, I go to the whole body. One can go to the touch point with the seat, hands on the knees, something like this. Going to some place in the body can be helpful. And we rest there, it might be half a second. And then we wait for the breath to come. 
So it helps a lot with issues of controlling the breath, which is quite common, that it gives us a time when we're not in control and we, we wait for the breath to come again. So this can help, you know, as we were mentioning earlier in the day, um, giving a label to the in and the out can be helpful for some people. Some people count the breath, sometimes count um, the in-breath and out-breath as one, up to 10, back to one. There are ways in which um, all of these techniques, what they actually do is they engage the mind in ways that prevent the conceptual mind from having so much room to operate. It's interesting. We do that with mindfulness as well. We name. And it actually can help us to deepen in samadhi because the mind is engaged more. And we're not so much at the mercy of wandering thoughts. Many of you, even on the first day, may have found that the qigong was helpful for settling. You could do qigong or in some way settling the body before you practice. Do five minutes of that. Or maybe that maybe you have a yoga practice that is very settling. You know, and partic- qigong is particularly valuable because it works with the energetic body. And there are many ways in which the, the um, settling of the energetic body can really help with the quieting of the mind. Some of you may know pranayama practices in yoga or may work with the energetic body in Tai Chi or Qigong or in other practices. It can be very, very helpful to, to work in that way. You know, I've, I've worked with some people who, for whom staying with meditation for a significant period of time didn't quite get at this really overly active mind, but a body practice did. So it's quite interesting. So again, see how it is for you after the samadhi practice in our mornings. That can be very, very helpful. Another way to work with the overactive mind, again, is to bring the uh, attention and use the mind to engage more with the breath. Again, we were, we've talked about how we can develop, develop interest in the breath. One way of working with the breath is to really have almost a devotional, heartfelt relation to the breath. This clicks for a lot of people, like really fall in love with the breath. It's available. You know? And um, See if, that, see if that resonates with you, because it can be a way that there can be a lot of interest. Another way is to really look very deeply and connect very deeply with the breath. Really be interested in the details. Engage very, very fully with the breath. Bring your, bring your attention in that way. And this is particularly also very helpful if there's sleepiness or drowsiness. So moving on to that second challenge of sleepiness or dullness or um, drowsiness. Again, very common, very common the first day. We want to be able to distinguish between when there's drowsiness because of actually needing a rest and being tired and not getting enough sleep. 
And when it's there, sometimes for other reasons, there are a lot of ways that drowsiness can be there in meditation, even when we've rested fully well. But if there's a need for an actual need for rest, take a nap. If you, you know, sometimes it's hard to sleep the first night at a new place, right? If you, if you haven't had enough sleep, get, do what you can to get enough sleep. Um, people doing samadhi retreats are sometimes invited not to skimp on sleep. So there are a lot of good qualities about doing samadhi. Another one which I didn't mention earlier in terms of being with the object is that it's actually not beneficial to be doing samadhi practice and have a lot of pain. And so the suggestion is to find a posture where you can really stay with with the breath or whatever the object is without distraction. If there's pain and it's taking your attention, stand up, shift your posture, do something like that. There's uh, full permission to move away from pain as a skillful response. So see if you can know that distinction because there can be sleepiness sometimes just in going more inwardly, closing the eyes. And so sometimes if you're quite sleepy, you can stand up, you can open the eyes for a little while. Samadhi practice can be done with eyes open if they're not focused very much, kind of looking down, slightly open. That's a possible way to do samadhi practice. Sometimes there are, there's drowsiness for reasons other than needing a nap or needing more sleep. It can be because there is a, an imbalance of uh, samadhi and energy. Sometimes when there's more samadhi and not enough energy, we'll fall sleepy. We sometimes call this sinking mind. And this is characterized by sometimes having dreamlike images, feeling in a kind of a, a semi-dreamlike state. And the response to this would be to raise the energy level in the body. This could be done, again, by something like qigong or could be done by taking a vigorous walk. And so be aware of that possible imbalance in the the practice. Classically recommended was moderation in eating. There are wonderful meals here. Samadhi practice calls for moderation as does probably good health guidance. (laughs) The third challenge I've named is that of there being sometimes a purification process in which things come up, you know, and um, I know in my own retreat history, in my first retreats, there was kind of a rotation between having retreats which were not that much came up and there was a deepening and inspiration. And then the next retreat, fear or self-judgment or anger or whatever, right? And there's, 
something about the retreat process in general, if we stay with it, which brings up sometimes these experiences. And there can be a tremendous amount of learning, you know, in the process. I know, uh, you know, I've had retreats where I was afraid for 10 days, but I guess the fear was in the workable range. It wasn't overwhelming. It was workable, so I could actually be mindful. Tremendous learning. Wow. Another one, very similarly, I was angry, angry once for 10 days at a retreat. I won't go into that, but again, it was, it was in, you know, I may not seem like a basically angry person, but um, it came up and I was able to be mindful of it. Tremendous learning. And again, that, that sometimes can come up in these retreats. It's part of just the way that when we sit in silence, there is sometimes material from what we can call the unconscious that comes up, right? There can be self-judgment, there can be all sorts of things. And again, we want to distinguish between when these are more part of the background and more moderate in strength versus when they're really, really strong and they happen. And again, the general direction when they happen is uh, to, if, you know, if, you know, if I was doing samadhi practice and I just started to have anger be present for half an hour every sitting, well, I would switch. You know, I, I might talk to the teacher about it and I would probably switch to mindfulness practice, probably do some heart practices and try to work skillfully with that. I'm not inviting us to look for this particularly, but it's just to say it sometimes happens. You know, and probably a lot of you maybe even most of you have had something like that occur at times on other retreats. It's part of the territory. And there can be a lot of phenomena that occur. Again, work with that distinction about is it it, uh, moderate or less strong or is it strong enough and might be strong for 20 minutes. We work with it and it doesn't show up again. So that's that is something to, to definitely to work with at times in the, in the retreat. <clears throat> so I, I think in general for material that comes up that's challenging like that, that is there for a duration. A combination of mindfulness and some kind of heart practice like metta or self-compassion, something like that can be very helpful. The, the fourth challenge is this challenge of attachment to state, deeper states of samadhi. And um, this happens, you know, sometimes when we taste some samadhi, and I think I, I know this very well in my own practice, and when, when that occurs, I think we want to just notice that. It's partly a matter of really looking at one's motivation, looking carefully at what am I doing, you know, or how much am I trying to recreate something that happened? Be careful with that. You may have had uh, a certain depth of practice in one sitting. Be careful of trying to reproduce it. Try to be, stay with that freshness. Really, really important. And even though I say this, my guess is that for a lot of us, we just have to work with that at those attachments. And this can be also the attachment that's expressed through an expectation. I expect that I will have deep samadhi, even though we say, just stay with it, don't really 
feed your expectations. <clears throat> so even though we say things like this, for some people, and I include myself among these, our learning occurs through suffering. Through having expectations, having them not be met, and having distress, even though people told me what to do and I didn't follow it because there was some asterisk I put on the instructions, <laughs> such as, does not apply to me. Yeah. <laughs> so, you were warned. Okay, and the last one, let's see, the last one is this uh, challenge of over efforting or striving. Again, can be related to what I was just mentioning. And here, I'll be, I'll be brief because of time. Um, it can be helpful to have this combination, again, of what we might call more active effort or more receptive effort. And even the word effort is, for many of us, has connotations of a little bit like concentration of striving or pushing. And so it's really to have this uh, sustained energy. Sometimes we use energy uh, instead of the word effort. That can be, can be helpful. So it's really to look for this balance. For some of us, we need, this is related to that balance of um, <clears throat> um, persistence or discipline on the one hand and relaxation and ease. Another way we can say that is there are dimensions of energy which are more active, things we do that are more active and some that are more receptive. So, um, you know, the, it's the part of the active quality is to keep coming back, to keep coming back to the breath. Another, th another more active thing might be to really notice when we're having repetitive thoughts and say, not now. We, we sometimes liken samadhi training to training a puppy. We say, not now. Okay? And we have to, sometimes we say that to ourselves. I know for myself, I've sometimes, uh, when I've you know, been at longer samadhi retreats and been repeating things to myself, having repetitive thoughts, sometimes I would summon the energy of a tiger and go, directed towards the repetitive thoughts. That was helpful. <laughs> and I, I'm kind of, you know, I think we're sharing our collected tips, right, from over the years. And um, another time I found it really helpful when I was, when samadhi practice, I was a little stuck and I was not getting what I wanted. I invoked the sense of mystery. And this could be beautiful also, just say, I have no idea what's happening. I'm just going to open to the mystery of this practice and let happen what happens. And sometimes that would be very helpful to say that at the beginning of a sitting. This is a mystery sitting. I will open to the mystery and not try to make anything happen. And be open with whatever happens is okay. So these, are, these, can, be very, these can be very helpful. And then there's that dimension of ease or relaxation. This can be connected just with really, in a way, letting ourselves connect with the breath, engage with it, and be taken by it. 
Again, sometimes the quality of devotion. Let me be taken by the rhythm of the breath. Let me have this interest, this appreciation. Let me just be with the breath in that way. And this, this is connected with words like relaxation, ease, softening, allowing, allowing the breath. And maybe one of those words is helpful for you. You can name it at the beginning of a sitting. There can also be this quality, I think Aaron was referring to this, this quality of just enjoying the moment. Whatever is happening, let me just enjoy this. So allowing, ease, relaxation, softening, enjoying. That's just letting ourselves be with what's occurring. And so as we develop all of these tools and stay with the process, we can deepen in that samadhi, which is so crucial for greater freedom, for developing insight. Again, it's always for that purpose, but it also can be a tremendous tool in daily life. You know, if we have well-developed samadhi, we can be very effective and efficient in our, in our daily lives. It's a tool which really can be transferred into daily life. Let me just finish with a a poem that uh, I wrote at the end of a period of samadhi practice. this ancient vocation of simplicity. Purity of heart is to will one thing, said Kierkegaard. The breath opens the doors to outer life and to inner light, where we may for a time reside in silence, stillness, and brilliant space, and be brought refined, renewed, revived, revisioned, back to the next sounds, steps, and sights of this journey home. So thank you very kindly for your attention and your practice. And um, tomorrow morning in the instructions, I'll give a little bit of a very brief summary with some guidance in terms of some of the challenges of the practice. So I'll I'll come back to that. And so we have now uh, about half an hour for walking meditation. And then we come back about... uh, excuse me, come back at nine for our last segment. And do you think it's possible that it might be a little shorter than half hour? Okay. So it's very possible that it'll be shorter. Um, Recognizing this is the first day and you, you, you know, you've worked hard. 
Yeah. And we can feel that, we appreciate that. If we'll come back uh, in the evenings, we have our metta practice, and we'll have a beginning of the metta practice uh, tonight, because we really very much want to weave in the heart quality, as we've been doing, to the samadhi and to all the practices. And so, a brief metta session at nine, and uh, we, may, we may do a little bit of chanting, if not tonight, then um, tomorrow. So, again, thank you for your kind attention and time for walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.